0: Um, As we enter into our time of Advent, the last three weeks, we've looked at sight, smell, and sound. And this week, we're going to look at touch. And I'm going to light the candle so that I don't forget before I get into it. Um, But thinking about touch, it's a very interesting sense. Like, I don't know, you you can't turn it off at all. We're always somehow feeling something. And um, as I reflected on that and just thought about how that works into the Advent story, the thought that I just keep coming back to is the thing that I touch the most is my kids. I've got an eight-month-old somewhere wandering around being held by some, by grandpa, excuse me. Um, And I've got a four-year-old, and I think the thing that I touch the most is them. I touch them when I comfort them, I touch them when I love them, touch them when we're playing, touch them just every minute that I can because I love them so much and like the greatest way for me to express that love is to touch them through touch to give them that piece of me and the thought that has kind of haunted me as I've thought about how that connects with the story of Jesus is that is God and he chose to come to earth and to be a human with us but he didn't come as an adult he came as an infant, he came as a baby, he came completely dependent on someone else to take care of him and meet his needs and there is science behind the the beauty of touch and what that means for our development. I can remember in college Uh, hearing people talk about wanting to go on mission trips to Romania and go to orphanage, the orphanages, and just hold the babies. Because there were so many babies in orphanages that they were having like developmental issues because they were not being touched. And so people would just go and they would touch the babies, hold them, caress them, love on them. And that idea that our God came came to earth from heaven in the form of a baby. He needed that touch just as much as we do for his development. He let himself be that vulnerable that he was completely dependent on his parents and his family and his community to love him and nurture him and to help him grow. And then later in his life, what we see is his ministry is full of him touching people and touching people who were not touchable. Like he touched the sick and the dying the dead and the leper and all of these people who their culture said do not touch you will be unclean if you do and that makes you an outcast but Jesus was willing to bridge that gap and go from that idea of you you make me unclean to I can make you clean through touching you through loving you through encouraging you and I think that that's a beautiful gift and a beautiful thought as we look at this season of Jesus' birth and what that means in our lives. And on your chairs, there is a um, piece of a, a pine tree, a Christmas tree, and that has a lot of signific- significance in this season for us, but it's also something that you can tangibly touch and feel. And I want to encourage you throughout this service to just hold on to one of those and feel it in your fingertips and smell it and um, listen to like the sound that it makes. Like Just incorporate it into the experience that you have here and take it with you when you leave. And let that be a reminder to you of how God used his son to love us well through touch, and allowing himself to have that need first, and then to be able to use that um, as a gift back to us. And we have communion um, next in our service. We'll have two songs, but just take some time and ruminate with that, think on it, and um, use this time just to celebrate the fact that, chose to come back to earth as an infant and to love us really
1: well while
0: he was here and beyond.
1: Good morning. You can all have a seat. My name is Sarah. I'm a pastor here at Church of the City, and I am happy that you're here on Christmas Eve Eve. Is that a thing? Okay, good. Because I was thinking about it this morning, and I was like, you know when you have things in your childhood where you're like oh, no, I was just a dumb kid. Like, that's not a thing at all. I, as I was thinking about the greeting, I was like, oh, I was going to say that. Is that, that might not be a thing, but I'm glad. Thank you for affirming me. I feel good. Um, before we get into our text this morning, I would like to share a very vulnerable story about me, um, but I think that it, it's a pretty good example of what John, uh, the author of our text, is trying to get across. Um, so, this is like 13 years ago, I'm in college, senior year of college. I have taken this course that is like a current events course, and um, my now husband, who was my boyfriend then, was in that class as well. And we, um, during the, the course of this course, we had to debate another student about a current event. So my current event um, was sex trafficking in Thailand. So simple and clear-cut, easy. Um, Except for I got the pro uh, argument. (laughs) Um, I will be clear with you right now, I am not pro. I am not pro at all. However, I had to argue this. Um, So I did a lot of research, and I... Can get rather impassioned about things, so I felt pretty confident going in. Like I went to a conservative Christian college, and so it was definitely not a stance that anyone in the room had. Um, so I felt like I was really like fighting an uphill battle. So we go, we do our debate. Um, my the other student went first, the against. Then it was me, and then we did our like two minute rebuttals, and then per the course, we left the room. And the rest of the class decided who presented a better argument. And it didn't really affect your grade, but you kind of walked away with like, yeah, I I did better at that than you. Um, So we walked back in and come to find out the class was like split down the middle. And the professor, who didn't normally throw his um, opinion into the ring, uh, he, he decided the tiebreaker in my favor. So I walked out of that classroom feeling like, I am the... Yes, you know. Like, I argued I argued something that I didn't believe in, which is not something that I need to be reassured about, that I'm a good arguer. Like, that's not something that needs to be a pat on the back. So I was walking out with Chris, um, my boyfriend at the time, and I was just, like, on cloud nine, elated, talking about, man, I just did phenomenal. Like, literally, I was just, like a whole other realm, and he turns to me, and he was like, yeah, I don't think the professor should have broken that tie. I think it should have remained a tie. I, like, looked at him, and I was like, are you joking me? Like, do you not see that I, like, I clearly won that, like, fair and square. I was the better arguer. My position, even though I didn't believe it, like, he like did you not see that performance in there? I was brilliant <laughs> and it, uh, thus ensued like a, a rather heated conversation between Chris and I as to who why 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 you would leave it as a tie when clearly I won that and I was so blinded by what I thought was the right thing that I could not see how in perhaps in my debate I maybe tore down the other opponent And also further in my argument with Chris, I perhaps tore him down. Was so blinded by the fact that like, I am so right in this position. This is everything, like there's no other option. I am the right one. So I titled this, being blinded by your rightness. You are so in your position in life. You are so convinced that you are right that you can't see anything else, it's a difficult spot to be in. Because then, no matter even if you are right, which I wasn't, but even if you are, you have, you have inadvertently trampled down other people around you, bowled them over so that you can be right. So becoming right is more important than the people around you. Yeah, exactly. That's what John is writing to this group of believers, people that believe and follow Christ, but they're also Jewish people, and they have this long history and culture and understanding of God that is very different from who Jesus is. And so holding the balance of the two worlds, often their identity in being Jews overtakes their identity in Christ. This is where he is coming at, at this, at this um, part in First John. We're in chapter 2, and we're going to pick it up in verse 7. And we're going to read through 11, and then I'll go back and highlight through. Um, the text will be up on the screen, but feel free to follow along in your Bibles. Uh, so First John chapter 2, starting in verse 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have heard since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or or a sister, is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. So like I said, John is writing to fellow believers, and John has had this front row view of Jesus and his life. He has been side by side with Jesus through everything, has seen how Jesus was treated and how Jesus in return treat other people So John is giving a really front-row seat to how to live your life. If we're following Jesus, then this is what it looks like. But he also recognizes that there is this Jewish background, this inheritance that they have, this understanding that they are God's chosen people and that they have been set apart. So in order for us to understand the new command that John is talking about, felt like it was necessary to go back to the old command. And the old command is this, love your neighbor as yourself. We've all heard it a million times. It's kind of lost a little bit of its um, power because we're like, yeah, 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 I got it. Love my neighbor as myself, done. Um, just be nice to other people. We're good. But I want to go back and read it in Leviticus, which, yes, I'm doing it, guys. We're, we're heading back to the Old Testament, to Leviticus. But I really think it's powerful to understand what, this, what the old context to this, this command is, for you to fully understand where the Jewish people are and why this is such a stumbling um, hurdle for them. So I'm going to go back, Leviticus 19, and we're going to go read 17 through 19. 17 starts and says, Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against any, anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then verse 19 continues on, and I think it's so powerful to understand. It says, Keep my decrees. Do not mate different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seeds. And do not wear clothes woven of two kinds of material to get this idea of like being set apart, that there's not an intermixing of even your animals and your clothes, that this is God's chosen people and that they are set apart. And so when it looks like for a neighbor, the neighbor looks pretty much like you, follows the same God, the same customs, the same understanding of who they are, the same pride in being God's chosen people. So not to say that it is easier, but this is the context in which the love your neighbor as yourself, if you look at someone who is kind of going down the same road as you, understands life the same way, you can connect on a lot of different levels, then it's like, sure, like I will love you. That is easy. I can, I can do that. I say easy. It's not easy. But you get what I'm saying is that it is, it is less difficult because you understand this individual. You see who they are. You know the customs. You know that they are taking a break on the seventh day. You know what the food that they are eating, what they're not eating. You know who, who they have been with in their families, and, and they're intermarrying each other. And I mean, you, you know them. They are a tight-knit group. This is who the Jewish people are, and they have been chosen. They have this identity of being God's chosen people. So loving your neighbor seems a little bit more simple, a little bit easier. But then Jesus comes onto the scene and he talks about loving your neighbor. And the concept of neighbor gets a little bit broader, where neighbor is the Samaritan woman at the well or the blind the blind men outside the temple or the tax collector, or the prostitute. All of the people that seem to have no value in society, Jesus is now sitting down and having a meal and talking with them and loving them. And he's expanded this concept of neighbor and brother and sister. And I think it really did rock the Jewish people in how in the same way, and I can somewhat understand in how Chris's language to me that it should have been a tie, I would have been like, I'm sorry, what? Like, these are now all people that you want to hang out with? Like, I don't have the high pedestal of being God's chosen people? Everyone is allowed access? It would be difficult. It would be difficult if this is your mindset solely, that you were set apart Things are very straightforward, down to the animals, your clothes, your food. So to broaden the definition of neighbor would be a little bit mind-blowing. There's a passage in Mark, and it's on the screen behind me. I'm not going to read it, but it is a man who has been listening to Jesus talk. And his response is that to Jesus So you're you're saying, if I love God with all my heart and my soul and my mind and love my neighbor as myself, this is better than any burnt offerings or sacrifice that I could do in the temple. And Jesus says, yes, this is it. And if you were here last week, uh, Russell talked at length about sacrifice and that there had to be shed blood in order to write the wrongs in your life, the brokenness, the sin in order to bridge that gap to relationship with God. There had to be bloodshed. And that's what Jesus was, is the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate offering. And so now this new command, this new idea and pathway to God is that you love God and you love others those around you, your neighbors, your brothers and sisters, those in your workplace, and the people you pass on the street. And then he flips it to the other side. But if you don't, if you don't love them, then you hate them. I wrestled with this idea of hate, because hate for me comes with a lot of actions, and um, often anger, and being miseducated on who people are and why would you hate. And I mean, growing up in the church, this concept of hate seems really elevated. But as I was reading through the way that Jesus lived his life, um, especially from the passage in Mark, where Jesus was never ignorant to people's needs. He never had apathy towards the sick or the wounded. He wasn't ambivalent. He didn't walk past someone on the street and say, I'm praying for you and carry on and not care for their needs. That is what love looks like. That is the example that we are following. So if you are ignorant of other people's needs, if you don't have empathy, you are very apathetic for someone in their situation. John is saying, then you hate them. This, this is what it looks like because it is the opposite of what Jesus is doing. It's the opposite of the love that Jesus gives. And it's not love that benefits you. It is love solely for the benefit and reward of the person that you are loving. That is the kind of love that we see in Jesus when he came to earth as a baby. He came and took on the pain and the sorrow and the suffering that we feel in our lives he didn't have to do that but it was for our benefit for the ones that he loved he also died to be the ultimate sacrifice the suffering that he took on the pain again emotional and physical all of that not for his benefit but for ours the one the ones that he loves So this is the new commandment. This is the new shining love. He says, he says in verse eight, he says, yet I'm writing you a new command. It's truth is seen in him, in Jesus. We saw it in his life and the way that he interacted with people. And now also in you as believers, those that are following the life of Jesus and following in his, in his footsteps, treating people and living in accordance to how he lived So we're seeing this this picture of maybe the dawn where it's dark, and then slowly the light starts coming up as the sun rises, and the shadows are long, but we still see the light is changing, and there is like the tipping of the scale. And it's this idea that darkness is no longer the dominant feature in those that follow Christ. It is the light that is shining the example of who Jesus is, the love that he shared for us, now we also share to our brothers and sisters so there's a there's a point here that I want to make, and it's not one that I think you often hear from where I'm standing, but I think it's very true and we can debate it later if you disagree. That's fine, um, but it's this concept of you can choose to follow Christ or you can choose not to. That is your decision. That is your your choice. However, if you choose to follow Him, you are choosing to take the responsibility for the people around you, for your neighbors, for your brothers and sisters your co-workers to not be ignorant of their needs, to not be apathetic to the plight that they're in, that they caused that and it's on them and they need to work that out. That's not anything I need to be a part of. If you choose to follow Christ, then it doesn't matter what the background is of the person or where they go and worship or what they eat, or what they drink, or what they do in their spare time. That you love them. And not for your benefit, but for their sole benefit. For them to receive the love that Jesus has given you. That is what is required. That is what it looks like to walk in the light and to be a part of this truth that is coming and is growing out of the darkness. So you can choose to follow Christ, or you can choose not to. But if you follow him, then you choose to love the sacrificial love, giving of yourself, I'm going to end with this this morning, and it'll be up on the screen behind me. We're going to take a minute just so you have time to reread and think about it. Um, So we'll be pausing for a moment, just time for everything to uh, sink in. But this is the statement that I came across in my studying this week, and I felt like it's powerful because we can find ourselves in one of these categories um, this morning. It is Jesus that is the master, the great master of love. It is his school, his own church, that is the school of love. His disciples are the disciples of love, and his family must be the family of love.